Well, gang, I guess that wraps up the mystery. Welcome to another episode of the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo, the podcast where we delve into the mystery of Scooby-Doo media, getting clues from people who helped bring our favorite mystery-solving dog to life on various platforms, and maybe eating some Scooby snacks along the way. I'm your host, Alexa Lawler. Scooby-Doo, where are you? And it would have been mine if it hadn't been to those meddling kids. Gang, we've just been handed our next mystery. Blasted meddling kids. Today on the podcast, we have Ray DeLaurentis, who is the creator of Shaggy and Scooby-Doo Get a Clue. Get a Clue is one of the most commonly disliked series in the franchise. However, regardless of what you think of the series, I think it's still a great interview to listen to. Ray talks about a lot of interesting things from the making of the show, and without further ado, let's get right to the interview. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. Oh, no worries, Alexa. I'm, I'm happy to do it. Typically start off with a quick three-question trivia game, if you're up for it. Sure, I will probably uh, lose, but I'm happy to do it. <laughs> Try and start off with an easy one here. Uh, question one, what was the name of the robot butler slash servant in the show? I only remember calling him the robotler. I don't remember if he had a name. <laughs> Roby. Roby the Robotler. That makes perfect sense. You, as we get further into this, you will understand the um, the randomness and speed with which we develop. I develop I've done probably, I, I think I've probably written 600 produced episodes of animation since I did Scooby. Uh, so, so I may get everything wrong, but I did love the show. So there's that. Uh, no, no worries. It was quite a while ago now. Yes, it was. Question two, true or false, the first episode of Shaggy and Scooby-Doo Get a Clue aired in 2008. I'll say true. It's false. The last episode aired in 2008. Well, here's, here's the reason I don't know that. Because when I developed the series and when I wrote it, Warner Brothers was pretty much closing down. In fact, I wrote the last two-parter with Warner Brothers basically out of business and then jackhammering the wall of my office. Um, because they had left the building at Warner Brothers. And um, it only went on the air in Canada because Time and Warner couldn't agree on anything. In other words, Cartoon Network and Warner Brothers fought about everything. So I never even saw the series on the air. Oh, really? Yeah, no, I was. it was, <laughs> it was a hit and run. <laughs> it's, it really was kind of, the whole situation was pretty insane. Yeah, it sounds like it for sure. Oh, no, it was nuts. And last question for the trivia. Uh, what gave the Scooby Snacks the power-ups, like speed, strength, etc.? Oh, it was nanotechnology. That is correct. Yeah. I, I thought of that, so I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and to start off the general questions here, what's your relationship to Scooby-Doo? Were you a fan before working on it? Okay, so that's an, inter an interesting question. I, I, I'll give you the full-blown answer. Um, my kids loved Scooby when, when they were little. 
And so, yeah, I thought it was a great franchise. It was a very much a class to me. There's a math to developing shows and Scooby kind of had everything. It was exciting. It was a little bit scary, but not super scary. So it kept kids interested. There was a talking dog and kids felt like they were less scared than the two main characters, which made them feel brave. And so I, I thought it was very, whether it was instinctively developed that way by, you know, whether it was an accident, whether it was thoughtful, I thought it was really smart just in terms of um, being something the kids would naturally love. And of course they did because Scooby-Doo went through 20 million machinations and is still popular today. So yeah, in that, in that regard, I was a fan. I thought it was fun and I would sit and I would watch the show with my kids. Um, there is an odd <laughs> sort of uh, in for me to Scooby-Doo beyond that, if you want to know about it. I, it, it but it's, it's a crazy little story. Definitely. Let's go into that. Well, okay. So, so the year my daughter was born and she's um, 23 now um, and, and has her own little shows, um, uh, I basically did a lot of development because I actually love development. So that year I had developed, I had written 10 show Bibles. And um, toward the end of it, I had gotten comically brain dead from writing show Bibles because I write really detailed show Bibles with, you know, real jokes, real character dynamics. And they're not just fluff Bibles. Um, and at the end, uh, just to clear my head and as a joke, I wrote a one sheet called The New Scooby-Doo. And it was a joke. And it, it was it began The New Scooby-Doo is um, exactly like the old Scooby-Doo, but different in every way. And it was an absurdist document in which I made fun of development documents. And, you know, in, in that version of the show, Scooby, Scooby-Doo is a deep sea skate and everybody else was still human. So they constantly exploded from being uh, underwater. And it was just a crazy, crazy document that sort of maintained the sort of charm and sweetness of Scooby-Doo. Well, I sent it to my friend Kim Christensen, who was a... Um, a VP of development at Warner Brothers at the time. We had worked together at Disney and at Saban and Fox Family. And she gave it to Chris Keenan, who was kind of head of development, and he thought it was hysterical. So I started writing all different kinds of things for Warner Brothers because I've always transitioned in and out of live action and movie stuff and um, all different forms um, into animation, which I always loved. And so I started working with um, those guys over there partially because of my make fun, not of Scooby-Doo, but of development. And of they thought my mind was really loose and interesting and original. So I did a ton of stuff for them. I actually did a show for Chris and them. And then um, when they were going to develop uh, a new version of the show, Chris um, asked that, you know, Betsy McGowan think of me because he liked my looseness. And I'd already done a bunch of things and the network had become fans. And Betsy had said at the time that they had uh, they had actually had a show called the new scooby-doo but no one knew it was new because it was exactly the same as the old show so it had sort of gone this crazy full circle between this document i had written and the fact that they really kind of had a, a a kind of funny problem with the show no one knowing there was nothing new about it so she said at the time let's let ray develop it because he's the only one that won't make it lame <laughs> which I, I, I found a, a real compliment. And that is my introduction to talking to them about the new version of the show. And so did they have uh, a rough idea of what they wanted or did you come up with a completely new idea all yourself? 
completely garage band over there. And, you know, the truth of it is that most places other than where I worked at Nickelodeon for years after that, I ran Fairly Odd Parents and I was on a couple of overall deals over there. Um, but they, they're, they're much more traditional, old school, develop something to death and then don't put it on the air. And um, Warner Brothers was in a phase where they were just sort of trying to stay alive. Um, you know, at the time, Nickelodeon was the 800 pound gorilla that no one could sort of compete with. And they trusted me. And so they said everything I had written, basically, kids really liked. In other words, focus groups really responded. And so Betsy said to me, um, I want you to develop something that's completely unique. And I said, can I do anything? And she said, sure. And so basically, I, I had complete free reign. Now, of course, this was only to write up a document, not to, not to make a show, right? This was just for me to present something. So I like development and, and there's a certain, I'm good at it. I did it, a lot of it. I don't normally flatter myself. I'm good at it, but I will about a couple of things. I would say being a parent and development are two of the only things and my jump shot. They're the only things I'll sort of flatter myself on. And so I, I sort of said, I sort of said um, okay, well, this is fun. You know, this is a classic franchise. Kids love this. This is, this is really awesome. And I thought to myself, what do I, what is the kid part of me? What do my kids love about Scooby-Doo? And the truth is they love the mysteries and they loved Shaggy and Scooby. So I thought to myself, well, okay, if no one can tell the difference between any of the shows, maybe I'll do a show focused on just the two of them because they're really the money in the show. And I thought, in all these episodes, they're just these sort of vagabonds who, you know, are, you know, scrapping for a piece of pizza and never have anything. And I thought, well, what would kids want for them? Because kids, when they watch a show, they either relate to the characters and that they put themselves in the place of the characters, or they just want to be with the characters. Either way, you want to kind of wish fulfillment fantasy for the kids watching the show. And I thought, well, okay, what if they were down to their last piece of pizza and, and Shaggy discovered that he had inherited his rich uncle's mega mansion with everything a kid would ever want in it. And I thought that would be fun. I bet kids would like that. So then I said, um, well, what drives the show? Cause that's obviously not a show. And I thought, um, okay, what if there's a mystery to what happened with the uncle? Because obviously I don't want the uncle to be dead in a kid's show. So that was step two. And then I thought, um, you know, okay, well, there's something nefarious going on. The, the uncle's a scientist. He invented something. And so I was sitting down with Matt Danner, who you may or may not know. He's um, he's a kind of a big-time animator. Um, he was working on, I think, Ren and Stimpy when he was in high school. And I'm actually working with him again now because he's one of the producers on um, my, my partner and I redeveloped um, Night at the Museum, the movie franchise, as a movie series. And it was originally as a TV series. Now Disney Plus is going to make an animated movie. And he's the animator on it. So I like it working with Matt. And I like working with animators because they have very loose minds. You know, they don't, they don't logic things out. They just sort of have inspiration. And it's partially the way my brain works. So, you know, I make sense out of things after the fact. And he said to me, um, <laughs> wouldn't it be cool if Scooby-Doo was giant and he was like, Godzilla size, and he was battling another giant monster. And I said, that would be cool. How would you do that? And then in like a couple of minutes, I went, ooh, what if this, you know, the uncle had worked on this nanotechnology and he left the technology in Scooby Sacks so Scooby could actually transform? And Matt said, that's awesome. So I wrote it all down and I sent it to them. And I guess they sent it to 
kids, they focus tested it. And I'm sure knowing the way these companies work, um, you know, it's illegal to double develop in the Writers Guild, but they probably had five takes on Scooby-Doo. But apparently kids like that one by far the most. So they, they greenlit a pilot. And that's really the story. Awesome. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy but true. And why did you want to take on such a different version of Scooby-Doo? Um, you know, there, there, there were a couple of reasons. And, and, and one was because, I, the, you know, the sort of directive I was given was this is the same old thing again and again and again. And, and at the time, fans had sort of, they hadn't gotten so much bored with it, but they couldn't recognize it as anything new. And um, so th they were a little bored with it. In other words, other things had overtaken Scooby-Doo at the time in a big way. You know, SpongeBob and a lot of other shows that sort of blasted by um, you know, Scooby. And so, so I was asked to, to, to sort of take whatever fun, crazy I could bring to the table. Um, and I was specifically chosen to sort of be loose and, and, and fast with the series. And once again, I, I, I developed it so differently because I really thought honestly, from a kid's standpoint, that Scooby and Shaggy were the money in the series. And, um, I wanted to just do a series about them. And then of course I needed um, you know, I needed villainy, I needed size, I needed um, sort of big fun. And, and you know, like I say, the pieces just fit together in the way I described. And going into it, was there anything that you wanted to accomplish or put forward with the series? Um, you know, my whole point of view about writing kids animation, and, you know, I've written hospital dramas and dramatic movies and, um, you know, I've written everything. Um it's kind of pretty simple. The reason I started focusing on kids and family stuff, and and I had really done that a few years before I started running um, Scooby, was that one is a lifestyle choice, honestly. It's that, especially in those days, I could run animated shows out of a bedroom office, and I could coach all my son's teams and uh, be with my, my daughter and son all summer and spend time with my kids. And the other reason, which is closely tied to that, and my own kind of the way I'm built is that I started doing, you know, the potentially much less lucrative, you know, Saturday morning animated stuff. Now it's streaming animated stuff because my point of view was kids go through a lot, you know, they, they struggle, they're bullied in school, their parents fight. And if I can make a kid laugh at the end of what might be kind of a crummy day, then that was a value to me. And so my point of view with, animation was make the funnest most escapist craziest wish fulfillmentiest version of everything i can make because it takes kids out of their um you know their rut and and it, it takes them away and it makes them laugh and so i think that if you were the reason i went to the tone i went to was kind of for those philosophic reasons and I want to backtrack a bit here how did you come to work in animation and just in the industry in general Oh, okay. Well, I mean, the industry is, is um, you know, that's that's a long story because I'm still working. Um, although I have to say, I don't look bad. I have been working in it a long, long time. So so what happened was um, I, I went to NYU. I went to Tisch. I went to the NYU School of the Arts, um, you know, film school. Um, and when it was really an art school. And um, it was way back when. And I went mostly because I wanted to live in New York City. Um and because I always loved New York, 
and uh, we grew up in New Jersey. And um, and when I was there, I sort of bumbled forward. In other words, it was like I knew I didn't want to be working in an office. I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer, which is what everyone wanted me to be. And so I, when I was at NYU, um, everyone had to write a script, and only one of four people got to direct the movie. So I thought, well, this will be interesting. Let's see if I can compete with, you know, the NYU students. And I wrote a script. And as it turns out, it was actually a kids and family script. It was a story called Father Christmas about um, a little girl without a dad who makes a wish and um, in a very funny, quirky, wacky way gets a father for Christmas. (laughs) And so um, I did it and I loved doing it. And it gave me kind of a good feeling. And everybody liked it more than all the other scripts mostly because the other scripts were so horrendous and pretentious. Um, but um, <clears throat> I think almost completely because of that. But so at any rate, I said, oh, well, maybe I can write. And I went to Los Angeles because I had met a guy named Bruce Paltrow who ran a show named called uh, St. Elsewhere, which was a big high-end hospital show, like an Emmy award-winning hospital show at the time. And as a gopher still bringing fruit baskets to the set, I asked him, um, if I could, if I could write a script, and he said uh, he was a very funny, scary man, and he said to me in this voice, he said, "Write two, these two scenes tonight and bring them back to me in the morning and leave them on my desk." So I did. And long story short, I got to write some episodes and sell them some ideas for episodes for that show. But I knew I didn't want to write our television because I didn't like the life and I really didn't enjoy doing that. So I transitioned from that into <clears throat> um, writing some movies with my brother who's much older, but an accomplished writer. And he, he thought I was talented and asked me if I'd write some movies with him. And then I went on an overall with him to Fox and developed shows. And while I was there, um, one of the things I wrote was a um, kind of a crazy um, live action family show, kids and family show starring that was driven by a kid. And once again, I really enjoyed writing it. I enjoyed the whole feeling of writing it. So, so, Back and forth, I kind of did everything. You know, I literally wrote everything. I took books and turned them into movies. I took video game characters and turned them into animated pilots. I, I, I you know, I took a screensaver and turned it into a cartoon that they did 80 episodes of uh, at, at Saban. You know, I sort of, I sort of did everything. And um, at a certain point, I, I come back to the transition that I, I just discussed in our last sort of you know, in your last question, which was, I got to a point where, um, both my kids were pretty young and I desperately wanted to spend a lot of time with them. And I realized I could, if I could start running animated shows, I could make a good living, uh, and I could be with them all the time. And that's why I did it. It was a combination of really enjoying it. It being something that they could watch. In other words, they could come to Warner Brothers. They could come to Nickelodeon. You know, they, they could come to the places I worked, you know, and um, they could see my shows on TV. They could come to voice records. Um, and so it was um, it was it was just a, a good it was a really good sort of thing that fit really well with my sort of main priority once I had kids, which was to be a good dad, you know, and 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 and, um, and so that was really the reason I did it. And like I say, I also, when I was writing other stuff, I would think to myself, you know, what's important about this? And I did, I couldn't find anything. I could do it. I mean, I could write, you know, 
any of the NCIS series, I could write them in real time. I mean, pithy double entendre dialogue, you know, I can really literally write in real time. And I went back and forth and did some things like that over the years. I wrote some Providence, which was a NBC show. And, you know, I, I wrote more, you know, sort of heavy handed stuff, stuff that was more rooted in drama. Um, and it wasn't hard for me at all. Um, but I, I, it didn't, I didn't ever get a sense of importance from the entertainment business. In other words, I never needed the entertainment business for my ego. And so for me, I needed to do something that I felt was somehow important. And like I say, and it's, it may sound, sound hand bone, but it's really honestly true. I did it because I thought I could make kids happy. So, so it, it sort of all dovetailed for me, you know, and, and the funny thing is now I'm on the precipice of going back and getting a graduate degree so I can actually um, work with kids and I'll probably get some sort of marriage and family degree because I kind of, I'm a believe that, you know, sort of all your psyche spins out of your family of origin and, and, um, you know, so, yeah, so it's like something that I just, I love. So it's like, um, that's why I did it. If that, does that make any sense? Or was that just rambling? No, it definitely makes sense. Okay. <laughs> and was there a specific moment that sparked your interest in writing or, th and when you realized that that's what you wanted to do? The writing thing came strictly out of a search, right? So when I was in my first college, which was George Washington, I was a political science major and the guy who ran the speech department wanted me to be a trial lawyer, which I, I think I would have been very good at. So I went to, he knew a dean of a law school. So I sat in on a law school class and I found myself um, running across campus to get away from it, literally. And I realized at that point that I was not, I could not just go do a, a job that was that serious, that people were that serious about themselves and that, you know, and that was... It was just, it was just, it was just, I don't take things, I take life seriously, but I don't take myself that seriously. And it's sort of like, that wasn't going to work for me. And then I realized, you know, I can't go to work in an office somewhere. I mean, I just couldn't do it at that age. It, it just was, it was, it felt like someone was, I felt like, it felt like I was in prison to me. You know, it was like, I just couldn't do it. It was, it wasn't free enough. It wasn't loose enough. It wasn't spontaneous enough. It didn't give me enough freedoms. And then when I was at NYU, I realized, well, in order to make a movie, to direct a movie, I had to write something. So I had to write something. It came down to that. And I thought to myself, well, I also learned that writing was kind of the fastest way into the business if you were coming in cold. And um, if you could write, you could get in. So there was a practical reason, a couple of practical reasons. And then when I started doing it, I actually liked it. And I found that I had a um, kind of a knack for dialogue you know, and an act for story and an act for character. And um, it was just sort of natural to me. And, um, you know, I'm not saying I was any kind of a super genius, but it's like one of those things that, you know, I, I'm bad with languages. I'm bad at golf. I was good at that. So people recognize that. And they said, wow, you know, this is really good. This is really good. And I said, well, thanks. That's very nice of you. And, and I, I started into the business and then I didn't like the business at all. And I didn't like the whole feel of the business. And like I say, I had very little respect for it. And, and um, you know, when I first went to my first job, you know, I, I pulled up outside my, my, my crappy car from, from New Jersey. And there, were, there was a line of top-of-the-line um, Mercedes sports coupes. Uh, and not only were they top-of-the-line, but they all had 
come from Europe. So they were a European version. And as a 21 and a half year old kid, 22 year old kid, I thought, well, this is pretty cool. Everybody has a Mercedes sports coupe and this is really nice here on the lot. This is interesting, you know, getting rich in the entertainment business. That That's kind of cool. And then I met the people, you know, and I met the angry um, people with broken relationships and a lot of rage and, and massive insecurity. And I started saying to myself, I don't want to be one of these people. And so I started in, that was the first sort of schism where it's like, I like being creative, but I don't care about any of that. Right. And so when I first started really enjoying writing kids and family stuff, because a lot of people really loved the pilot I wrote and there was a, an agent, the head agent at a big agency at the time read the script and he said, and I was kind of repped by them. And he said, you could get rich and retire in the sitcom business. Um, and I said to him, yeah, but I don't want to be in a room till three o'clock in the morning with five guys who don't want to go home to their wives, who don't like women and who don't know how to break a story. Um, so, so that's not going to work for me. And he said, well, if you're going to do animation, I'm not going to represent you. You're not going to make enough money. And there was a guy at UTA who said the same thing to me because I sort of went in and out of this business the whole time. And for me, it was sort of like, well, I'm not going to be miserable. You know, this is my one and only life that I know about. I like doing this and I'll figure out a way to make money at it. So then when my, when I really realized the way I could still be with my kids um, and doing something that I liked, it was like it all, like I say, it all came together. It was like, I remember sitting in my home office and thinking, yeah, I could sell a show. I could be the story editor, even if I don't sell it. And I could write these shows out of my home office. And the years I was at Warner Brothers, I they would I would jam a whole year's salary into, you know, nine months. I would get off on June twelfth, which is the day my kids got off school, and I would literally spend every day of the entire summer with my family doing fun stuff for years without having to go to work. And I don't really know how any amount of money would ever make up for that. I mean, there's no way. And so, um, you know, seeing the amount of freedom I could manufacture in the business of, of writing animation, um, it was just, I, I couldn't resist it based on all those factors. And is uh, is animation a lot different than uh, working in live action, like with the people and the, oh, yeah. the, the studio dynamics? Oh, yeah. It's, it's immensely different. It's, um, and it really depends because there's all different kinds of live action. And I've, I've worked in all of them. So if you're working in our television, um, it's a kind of very civil, sophisticated universe. It's more like being a writer. You go into a room and you break the stories for the year and you get assigned a story. And by the time you leave, you kind of know what the story is and you go off and write it and you bring it back. Um, but it's also, you know, network heavy in terms of, you know, networks weighing in, networks. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a high stress game. Um, it's also very isolating. And, but, it, but it's kind of good. Um, you know, it's got good things about it. It's obviously lucrative if you're doing it. If you're working in more half hour television, it's more fun. You know, you go into a room, you break stories, you know, people kind of kick things back and forth. Um, but it is, you know, you really are, for the most part, at an office all the time, um, you know, and because I like kids and family stuff, um, 
there wasn't really an option to do anything good in that business. You know, I, 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 the Disney stuff made me cringe and the Nickelodeon stuff was run by people I'd rather not work with. And that's the best way I can say that. <laughs> so what I was doing gave me the freedom to sort of, you know, for instance, when I was at Warner Brothers, right, when I did Scooby, I, when they picked it, they said, okay, go. You have no time to write a series. You have no staff. Write this as fast as you can. I had an office at Warner Brothers. I went in some days. Other days, I didn't. I tried to hire the people they wanted me to hire. They threw out all their scripts. I found a high-end writer who's a friend of mine who I still work with now, and I gave him every third script, and I would write. So I would write run two. He would write one, and I went home. And I would be home every day. I'd be home when the kids came home from school and I'd turn stuff in and um, they really loved me and they really appreciated how hard I worked and, and focus testing people really, kids really loved this, this, you know, the stuff I wrote. And so it was much more, um, it was much more of a freelance kind of entrepreneurial maverick life than, than those other businesses. And uh, circling back to get a clue here, can you speak to a little bit more about what the development process was like and maybe more into what a typical day looked like for you on the show? Yeah, sure. I mean, the development process, like I say, was super garage band. It came down to what about Ray? Then Betsy McGowan saying, you know, I think you do a good job on it to me spending, I'm going to say four days developing it and then writing up really liking it and writing up a four page document, which went to the development executive, went to Kim Christensen, went to Christopher Keenan and went to Betsy. I think I got some notes on it. Um, I answered the notes and I made it better. Um, and I may have gotten a couple rounds of notes, but it wasn't egregious. It wasn't much. They really liked it. Then they sent it to focus testing. And then at some time in the future, which didn't seem like, doesn't seem in retrospect, like that long ago, they said, you know, let's write a pilot. And I wrote the pilot and it wasn't long after that, that they greenlit a series. Might've been, might've been a month. And when the series got greenlit, like I say, most of these places I worked, Nickelodeon was very corporate compared to the other places I worked. You know, Nickelodeon, I had a, when I left Nick, I had a six person staff, you know, I went to work almost every day by the time I left. Prior to that, um, I had smaller staffs of super high-end writers, and we could write a lot of what we wrote from, you know, my partner's house or my house or something like that, and we would go in for meetings. But by the time I left, it had become, a, you know, it had become like running a sitcom. So, but, but at Warner Brothers, it was just, you have to get these in on time. And um, you don't have any time to do them. And I would say that the average time I took to write an episode was three days. And, you know, there were 22 minutes. And I did very few rewrites. I got very few notes. And then when I would get a script in from the outside, I would do literally, they would, they would, a lot of times, um, a lot of times, the, the development girl would just write the word no on the third page and then say, Ray, I know you can fix this. So I would do page one rewrites, you know, of these 22-page scripts that were train wrecks in a day. So it, it's, a, it's a real burnout job to not have a staff. I mean, no matter how high energy you are, 
you, you start to get you start to get pretty punch drunk, you know, you know, you as you get towards the end of the season. And but it was really like a fly by the seat of your pants, go, 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 um scenario. And the only problems I ever had, which were taken care of by the network, were some of the production people um kind of got in the way and kind of got difficult um in kind of very lame control freaky ways that didn't help the show but i didn't really have to engage in that and i know one of the one of the producers who um never was given a chance to develop it and never actually was in any of the development meetings and never um never engaged in the process um I think I think he took credit at one point for developing the show and then Warner Brothers smacked him down for that because he had nothing to do with it. And I honestly didn't care at all because it was to me, it was just a job and a fun job writing Scooby-Doo. And, and I would say that was the only bump. I remember there being some ugliness about that. And I also remember trying to get my friend Matt a co-developed by credit, even though we only had one meeting because that's kind of the way I operate. And I remember Warner Brothers being difficult about it for some kind of weird legal reasons. But other than that, it was just it was just go, go, go. And like I said, by the time I got to the end of the series, Warner Brothers had kind of folded and they had sold the building um, to Amazon was going to rent space in DeVry University. And I had this huge office um, on the on the ground floor, which later was. There was a freeway wall paved outside of it when I was working there. And there were literally, I had wax earplugs in. I had one weekend to write the finale, two days to write a 30-page script from scratch. And they were literally jackhammering the walls to, to, um, to you know, on the next office over with pictures and things falling off the wall while I wrote it. And I remember coming home and just being in a daze for 10 days. Because I had written so much so fast. Oh my goodness! Yeah, no, because because the truth of it is, I know that from the outside, you know, people people will say, "Oh, well, couldn't that have a series have been better?" Or, you know, why did they do that? And well, that was pretty weak there. And I don't know why, you know. And 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 I understand from a strictly when you're on the outside of the process, why why people would have all kinds of criticisms of things. I think what's very hard to understand from the outside is how hard it is, no matter how good you are, to overcome the internal roadblocks of, you know, terrible notes, development people who don't know what they're doing, political infighting, people imposing their will on a show who, you know, shouldn't be weighing in, um, you know, schedules, which in, in the animation business are criminal, you know, um, you know, and, and, and so, um, you know, so it is, it is very hard to, to make anything coherent, let alone something good. So, um, you know, the process, the process gets pretty crazy. And one of the things I really liked about Nickelodeon was, you know, I worked with Butch Hartman there who gave me complete and total free reign. I mean, no interference, zero. I could do anything I wanted to do. And because he was who he was, he was a shield. So the network didn't mess with anything either. Plus the people in development knew me from other studios and really liked me and liked working with me directly. And so I wouldn't, you know, I worked very hard and I brought really talented people in to write those scripts. 
so, I mean, really, really talented, like people who ran live action, ran, you know, primetime sitcoms and primetime hour shows and, you know, big time people. And, um, and so we did really good work, but the thing I liked about it was they actually did give you the time and they gave you a staff. So you could really do good work, you know, and, and, and prior to that, it, it's really was a burnout game because, you know, you know, they, they give you no time to do your work. I mean, it was just no staff, no help. And here's your crazy schedule. So it, it's hard. It, it's crazy. Sounds like it for sure. Yeah. No, it's crazy. I mean, like in, in Disney's another place where on the extreme end, you, they have staffs and they micromanage things to death. So on one hand, you can make something good. On the other hand, it usually ends up being homogenized into feeling so Disney that it doesn't have any, doesn't have much life left in it, but at least they let people do good work, you know? So for me, the whole career was always a balance between those two things. It was like people would come and offer me much more money because you get everything when you're the story editor on an animated international show. In other words, you get a story editor fee, you get writing fees, you get everything. So you, you really make a ton of money, but, um, you know, you have to go much faster and the show, runs the risk of being really bad. So, you know, I always sort of weighed the, the balance between those two things. And one of the other great things about Nick was, and, and I have to say to some degree, Warner Brothers is they did let me bring in some incredibly talented voice talent. And, you know, animators, people who do timing, people who are directors and people who do character design have such a huge role in bringing the visual part of your show to life. And then the voice talent really brings the show completely to life without, without good voice talent. You know, you can write the best script in the world and it's just terrible. So, you know, I got to work with some really good people at, at Warner Brothers. I got to work with Jeff Bennett, who played Dr. Fibes on that show, who's, in my opinion, the most talented male voice actor in the business, in the history of the business. I don't think there's anyone who compares with him. And um, just in terms of range and ability and, and smarts. So, you know, that was great. But Nick, I got, Nick, actually, I also brought him in on every show because they didn't know him at Nickelodeon. I brought Jeff in on every show I did there. And um, they already had, you know, just a battery of, you know, all-star team development, you know, voice actor people, you know? And so that, that, part's, that part's really fun. And if you're working for somebody good, you can, you know, you, you get those people. And when you were writing for Get a Clue, did you have a specific process at all or any weird quirks when you're writing? Yeah, my process was I would wake up in the morning and I would say, oh, no, I need to have an, a whole episode to them by Friday or Monday. And on the schedule they have me on, I don't know what the next episode idea is. So I would go through a creative process sort of head clearing thing that I do. And I just open up my brain and an idea would come in and I'd say, that makes me laugh. And then I would, uh, for very many hours, build it into an, an episode that I thought worked like stream of consciousness wise. And then I would clean it up a little bit, send it to them. And they would say, this is great. And then I would either write it or give it to somebody. And then the process would go from there. If I wrote it, then, you know, I know I would deliver something to them that they would like. So although I didn't like hoarding episodes, the further behind I got, the more I had to write because if I got an episode in and I would say all the episodes other than the ones written by my friend, Will Schifrin, 
who is um, really talented and who I work with still and who I brought in um, on all my Nickelodeon shows. Um, you know, he was the only one that wrote episodes that they wouldn't throw in the trash can. So it was sort of like, and he was busy because he's a talented writer. So it was sort of like, you know, I had to just for the purposes of speed, either do it with him, give it to him or do it myself. And um, eventually, so it was really just a scramble to sort of stay loose and write as fast as I could. And, um, you know, I really liked the characters and I really had the character dynamics so down and I broke the, I broke the stories in such detail. And that was, that was interesting. That was part of the process. I, I would write sometimes a 10 page rough outline for a script. So by the time I got to writing the script, it was like, yeah, it was fill in the blanks and any new good ideas I had for story refinement or for a new direction, I would just take. But for the most part, if I had to jam something out, you could write that in three days because you had 10 pages of, um, you know, you had everything. You had ideas for jokes, jokes, all the story turns, you know, um, you know, already written and, um, you know, in a raw form. So, you know, I'm a big fan of getting the story right. You know, if the story's wrong on an animation schedule, you're kind of doomed, you know? And if the first draft is bad, you're kind of doomed because even at Nickelodeon where they were, you know, they had way more money and way more time. The, the way that the way the schedules work is this. You get six or seven weeks, right, to get going. And during that time, you run into a lot of bumps in terms of your scripts because people are still refining the show. So you're lucky to have three scripts in the can when you start. And the way it works is first week, you turn in a first draft. Second week, a second draft. Halfway into the third week, a polish to actually go to board, storyboard, and to record it. Okay. And by the time you're to the fourth episode, you're doing three or four scripts that way. So in other words, every Thursday, you need another approved premise. Every Friday, you need another approved um, outline for the script before that. Every next Thursday, you need another approved first draft for the script before that. Every, every following Tuesday, you need an approved second draft for the script before that. Every Friday of that same week, you need an approved final draft, a record draft, right? So you're juggling four to five weeks in. You're now juggling six scripts at a time all the time till you get to the end of 40 scripts. And in what amounts to 40 weeks, you've produced 40 scripts that are being animated. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so that's what you're dealing with. And of course, shows that work, shows that are given, you know, sort of, you know, more licensed shows that have talented people on them, shows that have more people from, uh, in terms of coalescence, in terms of, you know, like the board guys are great. You know, the voice people are great. Everybody's pitching and everybody knows what they're doing. It gets very collaborative in those, ver in those scenarios, you know, you, you know, you can do it and you can do it all. You can do it all great. And when it becomes a well-oiled machine, like fairly odd parents, even though I really redeveloped fairly odd parents and made it a less mean, more fun, show um you know a show like that a show like Phineas and Ferb which is a show that literally used the exact same story formula every week 
there was no variance in the way the story was built to the point of as a writer, I'd blow my brains out, but it was, it was a, it was a structure that worked for them. And in terms of SpongeBob where, you know, shows like that, that, you know, really work and, and, and they're really built to fly, you know, they, they sort of work as shows. Um, you can do it and you can do it well, but when a show has, when a show has flaws, um, or when a show is difficult on another level, boy, those schedules are pretty hard to meet. <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty crazy. You know? They're pretty crazy. I mean, when Will and I, we developed Night at the Museum, which is, you know, a high-end movie franchise in terms of the writing, and we developed it for an animated kids show, and we were saying to each other when it was about to be greenlit as a show before Disney bought Fox, canceled it as a show, and then eventually made it into a movie. We were saying to each other, we're going to die writing this, writing this show on, on, a, on a network schedule or something's going to have to give because our episodes were written at the level of, of a feature length animated movie. I mean, they were super high end. I mean, Sean Levy who developed the series told us personally that he thought some of the characters were better than they were in the movie franchise. So, you know, we had no idea. I mean, how we were going to do that. Um, you know, but, but we would have tried, I think we would have lived through it somehow. Um, but, but, um, you know, it just really comes down to, like I say, how well the show works and how much time you have. But if you don't have six or eight scripts in the bank that work, you're kind of doomed. And you're guaranteed when you're talking about getting to episode 30 out of 40, that's how many you're writing. You're going to be punch drunk, no matter how much energy you have, no matter you know how good you are. It's it's very hard. It's fun. It's It's fun. It's a huge challenge, which is really to come back to an earlier question. One of the main reasons I became a writer was because I would have been bored if I'd done something that wasn't challenging every day I did it. And it is. So, you know, and staying on a schedule is really challenging. And there were a few years there in my career where I didn't stay on schedules. And um, I sort of just made sure the show was good. And um, people forgave me for it because the show was good. But, you know, I realized pretty quickly that that really wasn't an option. You know, they ultimately, they don't care. They need the show in the can. And for Get a Clue, where did the idea come from to have that uh, one overarching villain in Dr. Fibes? Me. It just came from me. It was it was basically, you know, <clears throat> it's, it's sort of the part of it was the math of the idea, which is what happened. You know, I remember just saying to myself one day and I have a, you know, I have a pretty good memory. So I remember where I was sitting in my office and everything thinking, okay, so what happened to the uncle? He can't be dead. And I thought, okay, he's a scientist. And I sort of went down that road and I went, okay, I know something that kids love and kids have loved it since the dawn of animation. They love a villain who's 49% dangerous and 51% funny, who is sort of plays the version in the show of the wrap too tight adults in their lives that try to over-socialize them. The soccer coach who yells at them for talking, you know, you know, I mean, it's those people who try to get rigid with kids and over-socialize them when they're little, right? 
and they, they, they you know, they, they want everything to be by the book. They want it, they want it their way. You know, you know, it's my way or the highway. Do what I do, not what I, you know, what I say, you know, what do what I say, not what I do. And, you know, you look back, Yosemite Sam, Squidward, Mr. Crocker. You can look at sort of any of those sort of big kids franchises that, you know, are, are money. You know, um, the girl in Phineas and Ferb, whose name eludes me, um, the sister who always tried to ruin the fun, you know, um, Candace. You know, and kids love that character. And the reason they love it, because I've studied a lot of psychology, they love it because they love, like I say, people who are trying to control the fun, right? Who are maniacal in their own way, who just want to ruin your fun, who undo themselves because of their own psychological flaws and get themselves horrendously frustrated. Not only is that for kids fun, but it's actually therapy for kids. I would debate. And so I thought, well, what, you know, I want to build this character that makes me laugh. And um, I did. So that's how, that's where it came from. And it's, it's a funny story. When I was about six episodes into the show, um, the Warner Brothers development people took me out to lunch and they were awesome. And they said, um, you know, we're a little worried that, um, the Dr. Fives character is too big a part of the show. And I said, okay. I, and I said, that's fine. I said, you know, I can pull him back. I said, I think kids are going to love this character because I think they'd probably love watching him be frustrated. And they came back from a focus group a week later and said, can you add more Dr. Fives? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, the thing is I have good instincts with kids um, and um because I like them and respect them. And, and, you know, you know, if you're a writer, especially if you write comedy or you write kid stuff, you have to, you really have to have a hold of that kid part of yourself, which I don't think goes away in anybody entirely. It's just that when we become neurotic adults, we lose touch with it. So, yeah. So I thought it was a good formula, both from what the show was, especially because Scooby and Shaggy are so comically clueless, you know, which is, part of the what makes them lovable and part of which what means you have to have someone else doing some of the talking sometime because they just sort of do what they do and i really like the idea in that series that they sort of bumbled happily and good heartily through their own stuff and the villain just undid themselves every week i just found that kind of charming and it also, without the rest of the gang, um, there was really, they, they, really that's kind of the way it had to work. They could be, they could be smarter. They could get it, and they had to sort of elevate their their sort of ability to break down the situation. But you know, if you if you gave them sort of a focused path and a shiny object, they would always choose the shiny object because that's who they were. And I really think that's what makes them so lovably kid-like, you know, and I think it's why kids like them because kids say they're like me, but they're even more afraid. So I don't have to be afraid. I can be the brave one and I'm even smarter. So I feel good about myself when I'm with them. <laughs> and it's, you know, if you look at the way shows are developed, you look at SpongeBob, right? SpongeBob is, he's a regular kid. He's, you know, comically clueless in a lot of ways, not, not stupid, but he's very average, right? 
So in order to make SpongeBob seem smart and seem like the star, you have to give him the dumbest best friend in the world, in Patrick. And that's how you balance the the sort of um, that's how you balance the mobile of that show out. Because every show is like it's like you know what you know what you know what a mobile is like you know a piece of art where there's a main hanging piece and then everything else balances out on either side. And that's sort of the way shows work. There's a main character, and then you put something on one side, and it tilts the mobile too too much one way. Then you put something on the other side, and it, it you just have to keep rebalancing it. So so to make it feel whole and to make it feel sort of holistic. And so that's um that that's 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 why I did it the way I did it. Once again, I I apologize. I tend to ramble. <laughs> no problem. And going off of that, is that where uh, Agents One and Two came in as well? Yeah, they, they because when, when exactly, very, it's exactly right because Fives didn't drive himself crazy enough, so I had to create characters that would drive him even crazier. I mean, I've watched kids watch cartoons, and nothing makes them laugh harder than when a villain comes to pieces because his sidekick screws him up, you know, or, or, because yeah, I mean, or because he gets screwed up by the funny, loose minded hero, you know, when, when Bugs Bunny messes with Yosemite Sam and he loses his mind, it kills kids. They think it's the funniest thing ever. So yeah, the idea was to go back and frustrate, um, him as much as possible. And sometimes Scooby and Shaggy did that enough. And sometimes those other characters um, had to do the work for him. But but you have to understand, and I'm sure you do by now, based on how little I had going into this series, I was making up things while I was writing scripts. You know, so it was like, okay, you know, this isn't funny enough. You know, what do I need? And I said, oh, you know, it'd be funny if you had these sidekicks. And I would write them. I would run them by the network. And they said, we think that's funny. So I would add them. And what was it like to play with the dynamic between Shaggy and Scooby and Dr. Fives and Agents 1 and 2? You know, it was relentlessly fun, I have to say. I mean, I would sit in a room and just laugh. Um, and, 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 you know, it's, it's um, you know, it's a, a bunch of the shows. I mean, I always get to a point where I'm sitting in a room laughing at writing animation because it should be fun. And part of my own creative process is, you know, you have to have fun doing it. You know, if you're not having fun, you got to just not do it that day. You know, it's it's you have to work hard and, you, you know, you have to work really hard and you, you have to you have to be completely free of whether people will like it or whether they don't like it. You have to be completely free of what you're going to get out of it and just give to it. And you have to have fun doing it. And so they're funny, likable, lovable characters, Scooby and Jack. I mean, they're not two of the most enduring characters in animation history for no reason. Right. So you have to be respectful of that going in. If if you're in that business and kids adore these characters and still adore them, then there's got to be a reason for that. So so it was very fun. And, um, you know, um, uh, it was a hoot. You know, I, I mean, I had a lot of fun writing it. I would sit and laugh. And, um, you know, if that answers your question, it was it was a good time. And did you have a hand in developing the character designs and the look of the show at all? Not at all. In fact, I never particularly liked it. Um, it was, uh, I can't think of his name. It was something like Lubinowski, uh, Panoski, Panuski. Uh, I can't even think of his first name anymore. No, he developed it. And, and I thought they were, I mean, personally, I thought they were ugly. Um, 
and and um, um, but it was like you know I, I have a sort of a, a rule which is that I do what I do and I don't criticize anybody for doing something I don't know how to do. So it was like yeah okay the network approved it they wanted a radically different look that is what it is. I didn't particularly like the color palette. It was uh, too muddy and sort of brownish and I mean what I remember of it I have to. <laughs> I have to remind you, I have never seen an episode of the show. I've only seen rough animatics and, you know, like little sections of animation. And uh, in those days, you know, Warner Brothers didn't even go to Comic-Con, you know. So um, and then, the, the, you know, the network had fallen apart by the time they were putting it on the air. Like everybody who still existed, which was about four people who were working at the ranch at Warner Brothers, um, you know, in, in the valley at the, at the studio. And the, the building was gone um, and, you know, different people were about to rent there and I was off working on another show. So I, I, I never saw it, but I did like it. <laughs> I mean, I apologize for its imperfections because I think I could have made it really great if I had any time. Um, but um, but I did enjoy writing it. And I know that I know the kids liked it, um, you know, which is really all I care about. I mean. If every adult in the world hates everything I do that I write for kids, I mean, I don't care. I'm not writing it for adults. And did you have an opinion on the decision to cast Scott Menville as Shaggy at all? You know, I did not. Have, well, okay. Um, my opinion was respected at Warner Brothers. My opinion was gold at Nickelodeon. So at Nickelodeon, I had, you know, carte blanche, top level carte blanche to make decisions because at a certain point I had been right so many times that they just said, okay, you're overthinking this. You make the decision. <laughs> um, but, but at Warner brothers, it was a more political deal. And I don't remember. I remember really liking that guy personally. I remember him being a really good guy. And I remember the voice sounding to me like it was maybe, wasn't exactly like the normal voice. Um, and I, I don't remember exactly why they cast him. I, I And because, okay, now you're going to think I'm an idiot because I'm, I wrote a Scooby-Doo show, but who did the voice before him? Casey Kasem. Okay. Now, now, now the reason was, okay. Okay. Now it's all coming back to me. Okay. The reason was at the time Casey was pretty old. And they were worried that he might not have the energy to do it. And I remember saying to them, that's all come back to me now. Okay. I remember saying to them, well, why don't you just let him try? And they were very political at Warner Brothers. You know, they'd make their decisions and you couldn't really sway them. So what I did um, a a as a nod to Casey Kasem is I said, can I at least write a part for him? And I wrote the part of the uncle for Casey Kasem. And he did those lines when the uncle would check back in and those holograms, which I just remembered now, <laughs> um, Casey Kasem would do that voice. But there was also a lot of, um, as my Jewish friends would say, Michigas about um, Casey's wife at the time, who um, I didn't get the sense that there was a, um, a good relationship between her and Warner Brothers. But, you know, once again, I don't know whether that was Warner Brothers fault for not necessarily wanting Casey to do the voice or whether it was her. I mean, I, I judge not in that scenario. But now I remember 
I remember that. And I, I do remember that, um, you know, obviously his voice was great. And um, I remember now saying, well, you know, because I'm always sensitive to people. And I remember saying, well, you know, can we can we at least write a part for him? And they said, well, what would part would that be? It was well, Shaggy's uncle because he can sound like Shaggy. And um, I remember him being happy with that, you know. And I don't remember exactly how old he was or what the real deal was, but I do remember there was some sort of ageist point of view about does he have the energy to do the voice? Um, maybe. Oh, and this would just be a guess. It came down to money <laughs> because um, everything does, you know, as might be evidenced by the fact that the Southeastern Conference is trying to get kids to play college football in the middle of a pandemic because college football is a $4 billion a year business. So I don't know what it was really about, but I remember Casey being uh, really a sweet guy. And I remember, you know, um, trying to be nice about that, you know, um, trying to be sort of thoughtful. And that's my only memory of it. And like I say, I, I have no judgment of, of, I don't really know what the, uh, the mechanics of why they went that way, but I do know, I, it was voiced to me that there was a slight fear about energy level, but who knows? Because I thought he did the voice of um, of Shaggy's uncle really well. Yeah, I didn't think there was any problem at all. I thought he did a great voice. So, um, you know, I don't know. That that's what it came down to. You know, it's it's. I have to say, it's a very ageist business, and it's it's um, you know, it just is. You know, they they really. I mean, um, it's hard when when no matter how good you are, no matter how sharp you are, no matter how um more qualified you might be than someone else. Um, they really do, you know, the whole entertainment business really does, ang you know, angle itself towards the youngest, cheapest people they can get, you know, and it just is what it is. It's just nothing to be bitter about. And uh, was the show always going to have two seasons or with the political problems at Warner Brothers, was there ever going to be another one? You know what? It, it, somebody else reminded me that there actually were two seasons. So uh, I, I, my, uh, when I look back at the show, I remember it as one brutal, funny blur. But, but um, <laughs> I, I honestly think that there would have been more seasons. Yeah, and in fact, I think there would have been a lot more really good things made at Warner Brothers because I have to say, uh, Chris Keenan was a great, um, he was a great development guy. He's very smart and he's funny and he knew exactly how much to sort of just turn people loose and do what they did. And working under him, uh, Kim Christensen, who later retired, um, just blew the business off completely. She was the best development person I've ever worked with. Um, she was really smart, really had a kid sensibility, and once again, really turned you loose. And so um, I, I think it was really a great environment for um, – for uh, for making for making really great shows. I mean, I I would have never left Warner Brothers if um if uh, if I didn't have to. Whereas I would have left Nickelodeon eventually. Um, eventually I would have said I'm just not, not doing this anymore. And, you know, as look as grateful as I am for my run there and all the fun I had there and and so many good things about that job. Um, I I, I would have eventually left. But Warner Brothers was the perfect perfect job for me in this standpoint that had the great balance between professionalism and sort of a garage band sort of attitude that I think animation and the game business and things like that exists best in, you know, nothing was overthought. Um, but I have to say, weirdly, I'm enjoying working for Disney plus right now. 
um, because they're so thoughtful about quality. So everybody has their good stuff, but I think there would have been more seasons. I think there would have been more seasons of that and some other shows. And I think there would have been some really fun, good new shows. And I honestly think that if Scooby had gone on, I would have probably brought the rest of the gang in and done variations on different cast members with each other, you know, different character dynamics, you know, because, because television's all about character dynamics. It's about, you know, which is why you want number one and number two with Dr. Fives, you know, because they drive him crazy and the dynamics fun. It's why you want Mr. Spock and Captain Kirk, you know, it's why you want Patrick and, 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 and SpongeBob, you know, and Squidward. It's a, it's a perfect, you know, triangle of character dynamics. So I think some of those original characters were really fun. And I think bringing, for instance, that whole gang and on missions that Scooby and Shaggy were leading, you know, they were in charge, but sort of wrongheadedly in charge of and having the gang being like, oh, my God, what's going to happen here? And then it all working out in the end correctly by accident. I think that would have been a really fun dynamic. And I, I, I have no bad feelings about those other characters. It's just that I was asked to do a whole new thing. So, yeah, I, I think the show would have gone longer because kids really liked it, apparently. You know, they, they focus tested through the roof. And did you have any storyline ideas in particular if it had gone longer? You know, I mean, I have no idea what I would have done just from the standpoint that I had to make it all up as I went, you know. But I know this. I, I could have come up with endless stories for it. And I would imagine what I would have done is I would have done a heel turn with Dr. Fives. In other words, Scooby and Shaggy would have saved him in some episode after he tried to destroy them in the most, you know, heinous, ridiculous way. And he would have made some sort of heel turn to become their friend and a new villain would have stepped into the fray. That's probably what I would have done knowing the way my mind works. And, um, you know, um, who knows, who knows what I would have done beyond that. But, you know, I think you, you, I would not have had probably another season of the Dr. Fives character chewing the scenery for six pages at the beginning of every episode because I was writing them in real time, you know? Uh, and I probably would have said, I, I would have gotten a break between seasons and I would have definitely gone to work and pushed it forward and, and done some new stuff. But I, I don't know. I don't know, honestly, what I would have done. I know I would have made it better. Um, not saying that it was bad, but that's what I always try and do. And I, I'm, I'm sure I would have found a way to do that. And personally, do you have a favorite character on Get a Clue? Yeah, I mean, Dr. Fives is my favorite character. I mean, because he made me laugh the hardest from the kid's start of my part of my brain. Um, you know, um, and but I have to say, I, I, I love both Scooby and Shaggy, you know, um, they're 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 wonderful. So I, I really love those characters, but I really did love that character. And, you know, I was a huge fan um, and I always have been a huge fan of Dr. Strangelove and um you know, when I talked to Jeff about doing the role, I said, I want to do ridiculous, you know, over the top, you know, psychologically flawed, broken, you know, loser Dr. Strangelove. And, um, you know, so the, the character makes me laugh. And, 
and I, and I, I, I liked him quite a bit. You know, I, I mean, when in the records, no one could keep a straight face when he recorded his lines. I mean, people had to leave the room. I mean, he, he's, first of all, Jeff is, you look up his IMDB and he's, he's ridiculous. I mean, we would bring him in on shows at Nickelodeon and we would say, you know, can you do this character actor mixed with this character actor? Like, and he would spontaneously blend, you know, two characters together in his head and kill it. I mean, there was a point on, on uh, Fairly Odd Parents where uh, a young writer wrote an episode of uh, the show. Um, and we had Adam West do this ridiculous character called Catman. And inherent in the character was Catman was a senile, crazy, old person in the senior retirement home for superheroes who didn't know his show wasn't real. So he thought he was really a superhero, but it treaded a very thin line of respecting sort of Adam West's character and Adam West as Batman. And the, the, the writer went over overboard and Adam West refused to ever do an episode of Catman again. And I felt terrible, you know, I didn't write it, you know, and it was approved by someone above me. So I, I voiced the concern, but we brought Jeff in and he walked into the room and did a funnier version of Adam West doing Catman and with absolutely no hormones, <laughs> you know, it was crippling. So he's, he's amazing. And like I say, once again, I mean, for people on the outside of the actual process of animation, everyone is so important, you know, but voice actors are the gods and goddesses of that business. And do you have a favorite episode of Get a Clue at All? <laughs> God, I wish I remembered one. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, um, well, I, I, I remember an episode where they, Dr. Fives get turning into a kitten. <laughs> I remember thinking that was funny. Uh, and I remember what I remember was at a certain point, I just remember the episode I, I kind of remember the most because I decided to take on something kind of crazy was I wrote some episode that was called something like the, the mystery, the mystery solvers, mystery of the mystery solvers, mystery or something. And, and I had written actually the Canadian version of, you know, the Canadian production version of Alfred Hitchcock. I don't know if you know about the Alfred Hitchcock series that was on in the, it was on in like the sixties. It was a Alfred Hitchcock's presents. It was before my time, you know, but it was, but it was great. I mean, it was really, it was, a, it was written like at the level of a mystery movie. And back in the, I think it was the late eighties, maybe 90, they did a, they rebooted the series and I wrote a few. So I knew how to write a real mystery you know, like a multi-layered mystery that you have to put on like three whiteboards at once because you can't remember what the real mist, what, what the real truth is. Cause you have so many red herrings. And I decided to write a real mystery, like just to go crazy and write it. And I remember it was this incredibly complicated story with turn after turn upon turn upon turn upon turn. And what I remember about the episode was um, when I asked if kids liked it, the, all the focus tests kids responded to was they thought the funniest part was when the, the hatch door kept slamming on Dr. Five's head. And, and it killed me. And once again, reminded me, you know, for kids, you got to keep it simple. But um, I'll say this. There was 
I remember an episode or two, one in particular that I didn't, I didn't think it was up to snuff because the schedule was so horrible and, it, and, 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 it, and the script came in and it was so bad that it had to be literally rewritten from page one and recorded in a day. And that was an episode where they went to a country club. And I remember just thinking, this is just so middle of the road. And there were a couple of episodes like that, that I just felt like, you know, God, just give me a little more time. It doesn't matter. You know, you're, you know, and, and, and there were a few that were sort of weak like that, but I remember for the most part, I mean, I know that the, the first chunk of episodes I really, really liked because I had more time because, you know, it, the schedule wasn't folding over on itself yet. And I remember liking the, the, the finale, um, the two-parter. But like I say, I mean, I literally, I remember coming home from that, that writing that script, my kids being off school the next day. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to do all these things. And then sort of realizing that I was in the kitchen four days later. Uh, having done nothing but kind of wandered around the house in a daze with a cold brain. So it's hard to remember any of it to begin with. I, but I, I, you know, so I apologize for that. I don't remember a favorite, but I do remember uh, enjoying writing um, the one where Dr. Fives turned into a cat. And I, and, and I remember writing, uh, oh, I remember, I remember there was one in space that made me laugh, I think. Um, but I like them all. And, and so I'm going to revert back to that super lame answer. I liked them all. <laughs> and if you could go back and maybe have a little bit more time, would there be anything that you would change that comes to mind? Yeah, I think so. I think I would, I would have taken the time because it's the last thing that you, it's hard to do. I would have taken the time to put um, more heart into the show. Because, um, you know, most of the time, all I had time to do was plot a fun story with enough danger in it, enough turns in it, and sometimes mystery elements, sometimes not, to keep it fun and to get it in on time. So, um, and I probably would have, the other thing I probably would have done was, I probably would have had, I would have pushed Scooby and Shaggy to grow a little bit. But when I did that, Warner Brothers kind of pushed back because they wanted the characters to be very elastic. You know, they didn't want to stretch the characters. Um, and I understand that because it's a huge franchise. Like, for example, you know, my partner and I just did a couple of rewrites on on an Ice Age movie for Disney Plus, And there's a couple of characters of these moron possums um, named Crash and Eddie. And they were open to pushing those characters because they were driving a movie. So, you know, you could write dialogue where one character could say, you know, Eddie, I've been thinking. And the other character said, would say, what, you what? You know, you, you, you why didn't you, and you didn't mention that? Why didn't you tell me? How long have you been doing this? You know, because, because they have, they don't think, they're morons. And I would have done that a little more with Scooby and Shaggy. I would have pushed them. I probably would have pushed th their emotions a little more in terms of their, their, their inherent love for each other, which I think is very sweet, and maybe, maybe made them a little smarter. And, of course, unfortunately, over the years, this show has kind of uh, gotten a lot of negative feedback. But what was the feedback when the show was first airing? Well, all I know is this. You know, you know the development process is um, what, what it was. It was really shotgun, really fast. And I know um, from, A, kids who focus tested the show when it was still in focus test zone here, 
and from friends who who lived in Canada and whose kids watch it there, from my understanding is that kids really liked it. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I know the kids that saw it that I know because loved it because I did at the time have, you know, DVDs and showed it to kids and kids thought it was hysterical. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I understand why, because um, it's it's not a purist version of the show and it's a beloved franchise. And um, also because a lot of people who review things are not kids. And it was by no means made for anyone but kids. <laughs> so, like I said, I don't care at all what adults think of anything I do. And like I say, I mean, for me, I mean, I never look back. I mean, the people I work for love the show. They hired me for a lot of other things. I had a ton of fun doing things afterwards. And I, I, I was sort of told by another guy who talked to me that I got the sense that people hated the show. But like I say, I don't care. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. It was built for what it was. It was, it was, it was the similar thing every week, and it was just really character humor, and it was fun. And like I say, it was it was fun to do and and, and fun to write, and uh, that that's what it came down to. But you know, I know like from your point of view, you know, you're, you know, you're you're a kind of a scholar of probably of animation. You, you know, you're you're interested in it from from that aspect. But it is interesting when you talk to someone from the inside who'll be honest with you about you know, how, what a crazy, you know, mayhem-filled, uh, breakneck schedule people write things on sometime, you know, it's, it's, uh, it is, it is, it is pretty crazy, you know, and it's, it's amazing to me that anything good gets made, and, you know, a lot of times it's, it's, it happens because the person running it is sort of the animator and the writer, so they, they sort of own the franchise in their head, or something just works and people sort of give it the time to, you know, to actually, to actually work, you know, um, but it, but it is, it is very hard. It's very hard to do. It's hard to do good things, period, in the business, you know, it's um, with all the people that weigh in and with um, the schedules that exist, um, you know, um, like I say, now I'm in this really interesting dynamic because when I was working for Fox on the Night at the Museum franchise, they, um, you know, they were like, this is fantastic. But of course, then they stopped paying you. But they've got, you know, Alan Horn and Alan Bergman and the very top brass at Disney reading every script. And they give really smart notes. But every time they give a set of notes, they have to pay you again. So it's like, okay, I'll make this better. I always like making things better. And it's, it's, uh, it's become this kind of funny circular job. And, uh, you know, it's like, that's what you have to be with. You have to either be with a group of people who let you go and you can make it good and they don't get in the way or people who are obsessive about it being perfect. And I think both those, both those paradigms work. More broadly, why do you think that a cartoon like Scooby-Doo about a mystery solving dog has held up for over 50 years now? Oh, okay. I, I, that, that, that's, there, there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, and I, and I, and I'll, I'll run through them as, 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 uh, as quickly as I can. Um, First of all, talking dog, money, for the most part. <laughs> you know, kids like dogs. They like animals. Um, the combination of Shaggy and Scooby is um, really speaks to kids, in my opinion, because, first of all, a lovable dog, which kids love. Second of all, a lovable guy who loves his dog, and the dog loves him, right? So they, there's a lot of heart tied up in those two characters, which also speaks to kids, and it speaks to boys and girls, even though boys are less likely to admit it. Um, and when they're watching those two characters, mysteries, 
uh, for some reason, kids love mysteries. Uh, they, they, they engage them. They're an interesting form of storytelling. You know, you're never bored. You know, you're, you're always sort of dragged along thinking what's going to happen. It keeps kids thinking and engaged. And so I think that's a great formula. Uh, I think a group of friends, uh, you know, for the rest of the characters, um, hanging out together, uh, you know, kids are social. They love that. Girls are social for one reason. Boys are social for other reasons, but they're both social. I think the fact that there were prominent girl characters and male characters uh, and the girl was the smartest character was really groundbreaking. You know, I think that was something that was, you know, way overdue. And I think girls loved it from that standpoint. There was a girly girl and a super smart girl. And then there was a handsome guy and, you know, and, and a goofy guy. And it, it, it sort of hit every archetype for kids. There were people that kids could relate to. So now they're engaged in a story because of because it's a mystery. They love the idea of a group of friends hanging out together. Going on adventures, you know, go, kids love vacations, you know, they love going new places they, they, you know, you put them in, a, in, a, in an RV and they're happy as hell, no matter where you take them. So they, they loved all that. And then I think when it, when, when it came down to it, it was just scary enough to keep kids like, Ooh, I want to be, I want to be, I want to look, but I don't want to look. But then what really cleverly or luckily balanced that out was they were really with Scooby and Shaggy, I think in their sort of heads and they understood more of the mystery than Shaggy did and Scooby did and they were less afraid than the two of them so they felt brave <laughs> so in a weird way it was empowering to the two of them so it's one of those formulas and Spongebob is another formula I could break down for you mathematically like that as well that whether it was stumbled upon by luck or by science of the science of how shows work and engage kids or both. I think it had everything that you would need on every level to engage kids. It had every piece missing. It had every character to relate to. It appealed to both boys and girls. Mysteries are engaging. You know, all the things I said, I think everything about it rather than just one thing about it. If that makes sense. Definitely. I think that covers all of the questions that I had for you. Is there anything else that you wanted to add at all? No, you know, I, I, I mean, honestly, I don't, I'm not, I don't do many podcasts because, you know, um, no one knows where to find me, but, um, but I, um, I, I just, I would just like to say thanks for, for checking in. It was really fun actually talking about the show. It, it sort of, um, it sort of reminded me of some fun things that I had sort of forgotten about engaged in what I'm doing today. And, you know, I appreciate you, uh, you, you you turning it on and watching it a second time after the first time and not just turning it off? Of course. And uh, just before we end here, do you have anything that you would like to promote that you've been working on recently? Um, well, I guess I, I, would, I would promote it. I, I would say that right now, um, what I've been doing largely for the last year is I've been working on um, what will be direct to streaming um, movie franchises for the new Disney Plus through the old Warner Brothers franchises. So I would say tell people that eventually to look out for uh, the, a new Ice Age they're making called Buck Wild, which we did a, my partner and I did a, sort of a page one rewrite on and we're doing a whole other set of rewrites for the original movie producer. So that, that I think that'll be fun when it comes out. And the other thing is we, we're doing... Um, 
you know, they're, they're going to produce an animated version of, of Night at the Museum, which is the movie franchise, which I, I love the franchise. And um, we'll be doing that next. And, um, you know, to look out for that, because I think they'll both be really good. I think they'll both be really high quality and really well written and really good kind of family franchise movies, you know. And, um, you know, then uh, there may be a really big project I'm doing for them that is an old Fox-owned classic comedy, but I can't comment on it until they agree that they're actually going to make it. But I would reach out to you and I'd let you know about that if they green light moving forward with it. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. So those are the two things I'm doing. And it's kind of full time because because there are two movies. We kind of just go in a cycle from one rewrite to the other, you know? Perfect. And one thing that I like to ask is whether there's any websites or social media channels where people can follow what you're up to. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. And there aren't right now. But what I'll do is I am going to put something together um, because um, what I've started to do, and I've been doing it for years, I've been doing it, you know, for, for years for people I hire, but I've started um, consulting for people who, um, who want to be in the business and helping people separate from actual consulting. So at some point, I'm going to definitely develop an online presence um, to do that. And I'll, I'll let you know when there's some site people can check in on, for sure. Perfect. Yeah, I will definitely uh, add that once you have it. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today, Ray. Oh, yeah. No worries. Listen, it was really nice. You were really you were fun to you know talk to. And, uh, you know, like I say, I hope you don't have too much editing to do uh, due to my rambling. You can probably just cut out whole sections and be fine. No, not at all. <laughs> all right, well, listen, you have a good day. And, and uh, you know, I'm sure I'll talk to you again. And that concludes today's episode. Another huge thank you to Ray DeLaurentis for taking the time out for the interview. For more groovy content, be sure to check at UnmaskedSD on Twitter, at UnmaskedSDPodcast on Instagram, or at UnmaskedSDPodcast.com. You can also find the podcast on Facebook under the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo podcast. If you like this episode and want to hear more, also make sure to check those social media channels or the website. Or you can listen to older episodes wherever you like to get your podcast fix. Thanks for listening and keep an ear out for the next episode. Scooby-Doo-Bee-Doo!